Hello, this is another episode of the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Bird, and with me, as always, is my co-host. Yeah, yeah my, I'm mad I'm here. Something, Hi. I don't know. <laughs> um, and we have a returning guest. We have Tom, uh, who's back. Yo. And What up, everyone? Yeah. And we are... Uh, back from G Fest 2019. Unfortunately, back in the real world. Yeah, that's. Yeah, can you guys believe we we? Uh, I think all three of us got there a week ago today. That's sort of depressing. That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It actually doesn't feel like that long ago. <laughs> it really it doesn't. doesn't. It's also weird that I've known Tom for like a gazillion years and i just now met him for the first time well that was wild when when matt and i said said bye to each other he was like hey nice meeting you and i was like what, the f- <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> no i yeah no that's that is kind of strange when when you put it that way um well uh we'll have plenty of stuff from g fest to post um we have something like five or so panels that were uh, recorded uh so that's probably gonna be a good deal of content for the next month or so um and uh yeah today we're gonna share some thoughts about how the con went um and then of course uh we have some movie reviews we saw um uh well i we saw a couple movies tom saw five and um I guess we technically saw what three and three and a half or something, if you count um, Howl from Beyond the Fog. But we'll we'll get into the movies uh, in a moment. Um, now, this was Matt's third G Fest. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it was my fifteenth, um, <laughs> and it was Tom's first. So, Tom, after all these years about hearing about the fest of g uh what what did you take away from it how how was it g fiesta (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) thank you awkward facebook google translations um i had a blast honestly um i uh didn't know what to expect um i think some of my expectations were um i think a lot of my expectations were actually set a little too low in terms of uh, I thought it would be worse than it was. Um, honestly, uh, I thought it would be more of a cluster, uh, especially with the way it started. For for those not in the know, it took it took uh, Kaneko had some difficulties getting there. Um, also, uh, if you've never been that first day. It is a bit of a cluster getting through registration. Um, they could have had a little bit more signage up to kind of point people in the right direction. Um, <clears throat> the other thing um, that I would say for anyone who ends up ever going for the first time would be on your first day, go and get your registration and get that done early and everything and get that out of the way. Also, usually first thing. On that Friday, they will have an autograph signing, and if you get into the line for it at, like, half an hour before the person is supposed to be there, you will wait, like, half an hour. You'll be, like, the third person in line. Um, But then, there's usually a decent, like, almost, what is it, two hour or an hour at least gap between 
when you're going to be doing anything there and when the first panels are going to be. And I would say resist the temptation to do anything like get your autograph and head back to your room until the panels start. Because I tried like walking around the con for a little bit, you know, in that brief little hour window and getting into any of the rooms was like a nightmare and it made me really nervous. But then once the panels start and people kind of filter into those and, you know, the crowds kind of die down that you can get in and out of the like exhibition rooms a lot easier. Um, but I had a blast overall. I think it was it was absolutely phenomenal meeting a lot of these people. Like, I mean, Matt and I, obviously, we, we've been talking so long that he said, nice meeting you, and I thought he was crazy. Um, but even just, you know, I mean, Kevin and I have recorded on your podcast together. I've heard Chris on here, got to meet those guys, uh, getting to meet, you know, guys like uh, Justin Mullis, and uh, I got to meet Steve and Ed. Uh, Steve Rifle and Ed Gajewski. Danny is a friend of ours. I got to meet a couple friends off the Monster Zero forums. Like that was that was awesome. Seeing how the con treats young people and people with disabilities warmed my heart. Like you have no idea. Um, you know, especially you know people with disabilities got to like go into the dealers' room first, and they got to you know meet people, meet some of the people in like a little bit more of an intimate setting and stuff. And just the way they catered to those kinds of people really, really was, I thought awesome. Um, because you know, for, 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 for people like that, like that might be the highlight of their entire life for all I know, you know, like, and to see them get that little bit to just kind of push it over the top for them was, was absolutely fantastic and amazing and heartwarming. Um, pretty cool. And like, uh, there was one, one kid, they were, pushing through kind of like going in first and everybody's clapping and cheering for him that again I'm, I'm with you on that it's it is really heartwarming and moving especially for us because like we're parents what if that were your kid like how would that make you feel for your child i think that's great right and uh and yeah i i had a really good time i the very first panel we went to um set a bit of a, a low bar honestly and it, it's not that it was a bad panel it's there were a lot of interruptions and I started getting nervous that like all of these panels were going to be like these battles to try and keep the crowd to like keep their stuff to themselves. And that was one of the only ones I attended that I thought was really bad like that. There was another one a little bit later that had a couple interruptions. And I think that's a, a fault of some of those smaller rooms. But um that first one was 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 really bad with it, but then everything after that, I mean, I I I thought the panels were all super entertaining. I thought you guys did a a, a fantastic job on the Biolanti panel, which I you know I mean, I would say I can't wait for it to be up on here, but um, I already saw it, I lived it, so. Uh, but look for that, listeners, because it it was a good one. It really was, um, and and yeah, I had I had just had a great time, and you know, a big part of that is. Um, a couple, one of the things that we'll be talking about on this episode towards the end, one of the movies we saw, that was a that was a big part of it. Um, but a, another big part of it was two concerts that absolutely blew me away. Uh, you guys both were there. Yeah. Um... The uh, the Kaiju Crescendo concert was absolutely fantastic. John DeSantis and Eric Hominick did a did a really good job. Uh, John picking out like. Bird had mentioned it to me, like just the his arrangements and the way he the way he arranged that whole like set list was was fantastic. 
you know, you started off with the Godzilla theme, you rolled into Rodan and had that kind of like dour, broody, moody music. And then it went into Son of Godzilla and you could feel the energy in the room change. That was cool. That was really, really cool. And then um, when uh, when they get to the Mecha Godzilla suite, you know, they went through they went through three treasures, which everyone was kind of surprised because I don't think most people had ever heard that score really because most people really haven't seen that movie and mysterians and those you know mysterians has a lot of themes that people recognize and that was good and then they got into the godzilla versus mecha godzilla score and um a vocalist approached a microphone and i think to a person me matt bird eric all looked at each other nervously (laughs) um and she belted out the king caesar song and it brought the damn house down yeah it really did that was that was the highlight of the concert for me because she like completely just nailed it it was wonderful i never thought i would like that song but i totally loved it. whoa whoa wait wait what, <laughs> what? i don't like the, the the csr thing man there's something about live music when you hear something live okay moving like on um the second <laughs> the second half was uh Conducted by um, Oshima, who did her did suites for Megagirus, Tokyo SOS, uh, against Mechagodzilla. I said those out of order somehow, um, which were awesome, and she was fantastic. Um, it was cool to see her family and friends from Japan there. What was crazy was, for as a composer as prolific as her, um, like we know her as a Godzilla composer, but if you look at her, her, uh, her. Uh, filmography you'll see anime in there you'll see tons of um video games i mean full metal alchemist yeah, i think there's like a sect of video game fandom that would like lose their mind to be able to see her yeah um and outside of godzilla in the states probably full metal alchemist is the most famous thing that that she's done but no she was great and then she wrote uh, a brand new piece of music for the concert called godzilla in chicago and she even came up with a little storyline for us to play out in our heads as the song uh, was playing, which was that Godzilla is in Lake Michigan and he encounters a giant sea serpent. As um, being from Michigan, I can tell you there have always been, um, you know, tales and myths and uh, cryptozoologists. Uh, talking about sea monsters in the Great Lakes, and uh, they get in a little tussle. Godzilla wins, of course, and then uh, for reasons uh, unbeknownst to us, he decides to take a stroll through downtown Chicago. He um, tears down the Willis Tower, uh, one of the tallest buildings in the world, and uh, then he goes and he goes back into the lake. And um, I I thought that was another highlight. Um, I can't wait to hear that piece again. Um, she's just, I think, one of the best composers that has written for Godzilla. And I, I think that for someone who, you know, doesn't know much about Godzilla and hadn't even seen a Godzilla movie when she did Megagirus, I think she really understands what makes uh, a Godzilla theme. Oh, yeah. Plus, Bird, you were heading somewhere with, with your one comment before I interrupted you that uh, this was the first time she had ever conducted a live symphony. Um, yes, sir. That, that blew me away. 
uh, hearing that, you know, um, <sighs> and that's why it was such a big deal to her friends and family from Japan who specifically came over like for this, like you didn't see those people around the convention really at all much, but you saw them there because this was the, you know, this was her first time ever getting to do uh, a concert like that, like a live concert. Um, so it was a big deal for them. Um, and yeah, w- one thing I, I thought was really cool about going to that concert was just even in, I'm sure people with better ears could probably hear this just by listening to them, but like really seeing how, um, if Bay themes are a little more heavy on the violin, you know, especially like the Rodan suite is very violin heavy. And then you, you, uh, butt that up with the uh, Oshima themes, and they're so brass heavy. You know, there were times where the violins were doing things, and I could barely hear them because they're they're very heavy on the horns and the brass. It's just kind of interesting. You know, it was really interesting to actually see it in person. Uh, it was awesome, though. It was like the highlight of the the whole weekend. I mean, everyone stuck around talking about it for like an hour after it was over because we were all just blown away. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was some, and um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to have been there, and yeah, I'm I can't wait for an opportunity to listen to it again, um, and then um, I guess are there any uh, panels that you felt like um, you know, I don't want to get into the whole tour log thing where we're just like, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did this, but any panels that you want to talk about? Um, where maybe you learned some things that you didn't know um, or kind of gave you any new insights into anything? Uh, the Takarada discussion about him getting shot uh, post-World War II was a crazy story. Uh, I would, I, you know, if, if you're listening to this, I would pester your, your friends or something to, to tell you about that one. Well, uh, uh, we can, not that he needs it, <laughs> but... Um, uh, our buddy Kyle over at KaijuCast um, recorded that panel, and at some point we'll be we'll be posting it. Um, yeah, he told a lot of really interesting stuff in the first half about his upgre- upbringing in Manchuria that we never really heard much about. And then, you know, on, it did kind of, the second half kind of gets into the same stories about 54 and Nick Adams that you've probably heard a million times, but that first half um, was was really interesting stuff. And then, uh, I mean, Kaneko's panel, I'm not sure how much new information was there, but it's always amusing to kind of hear him talk about how, you know, when he signed on for Gamera, he wasn't really quite sure what he was going to make or, you know, how he was going to go about it, since that's really a franchise he never really cared for. But he wanted to make (laughs) kaiju movies, and the opportunity kind of fell in his lap, and, I mean, he knocked it out. But, yeah, I mean... He, he he said a lot of funny things like, you know, coming home to his wife after uh, he'd gotten the job and she was like, so you're doing Gamera, not you're not doing Godzilla, you're doing Gamera. And he was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> and how at some point he thought, you know, he might have to make it as a parody uh, just because, you know, he never really took Gamera all that seriously. My The most amusing thing that he said was that when they told him, like, hey, we're interested in having you reboot Gamera, he was like, can we maybe do, like, Daimajin instead? And they were like, no, 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 we need to do Gamera. 
Um, but that was all funny stuff. And again, Kyle should have that uploaded onto Kaiju Cast at some point in the future. Um, one that uh, that me and Tom went to that I think is worth bringing up more because it's it was it just kind of expressed. I guess how sad the state of the genre is was um, Koichi Kawakita's daughter was there um, to talk about her dad and, you know, his, you know, his work as, you know, a special effects wizard in the 80s and 90s um, and uh, how, you know, Kawakita pretty much kept Godzilla alive here and there, you know, after Final Wars, you know, he was doing all that stuff with the, the pachinko games and and whatnot, and was really kind of, um, you know, trying to, to carry the flag. Um, and then with her was Yoshikazu Ishii, who um, assisted Kawakita on a lot of stuff, um, and also worked on a lot of the Millennium films, including, you know, being the effects director on the Godzilla, Anguilas, King Seesaw, Rodan scene, Final Wars. Um, and he was there to show his uh, his new film, Attack of the Giant Teacher, which we'll get into Um but yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, there were some amusing stories about, you know, growing up as the daughter of Koichi Kawakita, but I, I think it's more worth mentioning in that, um, you know, both her and Ishii are really just like, you know, nobody really cares about this stuff anymore, especially in Japan. Um, you know, Kawakita's daughter, she took over Dream Planet, which was uh, her father's company, who, I mean... Probably up until he died, they were doing short films like The God of Clay, which I still don't think is easy to track down, but I've heard great things. Um, you know, TV series like Grand Caesars and Kawaii Jenny and um, the Pachinko stuff. But uh, I asked her, I was like, you know, is Dream Planet involved in any production anymore? And she was like, no, you know, we don't do anything. Um, I, I dig out my dad's stuff. And we put it on display at conventions and, um, you know, exhibitions. And, you know, we don't, we, we rent, we loan them out to museums and stuff. And like, that's, that's really all Dream Planet does now. And it's like, that's a bummer. Um, yeah. And then when, when someone asked how the King of the Monsters, the new legendary film did over there, it got even sadder. Um, Tom, do you want to <laughs> tell, tell them why that is? Yeah, they uh they were they were both like, yeah, we we more or less liked it, but nobody cared about it. Um they were like no one really cares about Godzilla and then um the follow-up question was, well then why was Shin Godzilla such a huge success over there? And the answer that um Yoshikazu Ishii gave was basically boiled down to because Shin Godzilla is not a Godzilla movie. Um, he said it also, you know, and, and Kawakita's daughter agreed, you know, it, it definitely is something that spoke to the Japanese culture and zeitgeist at the time, but it was not a kaiju movie, not a Godzilla movie. It wasn't really billed or marketed as such in Japan. Uh, yeah, and, and it, uh, that is to say, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't have any of the tropes that we fans right. like li- li- that we think it doesn't of have when battles we think of Godzilla. it doesn't yeah. have the similar it doesn't have the same structure even as a lot of them um it's it, and and that's what they were like no one cares about kaiju movies anymore in japan they they care they're more into dramas and uh and not as much into spectacle and 
So when King of the Monsters came out, nobody really cared. Um, they said everyone who saw it more or less liked it, but like they were like, yeah, me and my five friends saw it, but we were the only ones in the theater. Right. <laughs> and then someone asked Ishii, like, what made you want to make Giant Teacher? And he was like, well, I mean, my passion is tokusatsu films and... You know, I mean, that's what that's why he got into making movies. You know, he started as a cameraman at Toho and worked his way into special effects. And it's like he was like, yeah, the the form of this form of filmmaking is dead. And I mean, no one's going to yeah. give me money to do it. So I just did it with my own money just because, like, it's the least I can do, <laughs> basically. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, yeah. Someone asked him why it was. uh why he did it as like an independent little movie uh, with his own money. And he was like, because no one will give you money to make tokusatsu in Japan anymore. Um, yes. And I know that, you know, there's those exceptions, you know, you got your, your Ultramans yeah. and your well, Kamen Riders. Yeah, and things, t- the, like, hero, the superhero stuff on TV, I think is safe, but everything else. Well, is... And, and it's interesting because you guys will be posting a panel uh, at some point that kind of, talks about why and it's specifically that they are now owned by a toy company um (laughs) and so they exist to sell toys i mean they're like the they're like the transformers or gi joe series or something you know or the turtle series back in the day they they exist as a commercial for toys the original Um, uh, title for the bandai ultraman thing was buy bandai shit featuring ultraman that was we couldn't (laughs) (laughs) we couldn't say that in (laughs) g-fest Um, but uh yeah so it it was an interesting panel and like bird says it was it was a little sad too but it was interesting um i thought the uh the tale of two screenwriters panel that we went to uh had a really interesting uh idea that i will definitely keep in mind the next time i watch the movie but uh, i don't know how much credibility there was to it but it basically went along the lines of if you notice, Matango, Attack of the Mushroom People, has seven main characters in it, and there are seven deadly sins. Uh, immediately, obviously, what springs to mind is Kumi Mizuno as Lust, and you could maybe fill in a couple of the others, but I'm curious to keep that in the back of my mind when I when I rewatch the movie. The other, the other really interesting thing they talked about was towards the end of their panel when they discussed uh, Sekizawa and Kimura kind of collaborating on Godzilla vs. Gigon and how that kind of collaboration comes across and how the movie really has a lot of interesting markers uh, that it's a smarter script than than it lets on because it's, you know, such a low-budget, uh, goofy movie. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, all the stuff about corporate takeover and, you know, Godzilla Tower is this, like... Um... I guess the the corporations killing Godzilla literally and uh, yeah, there was some interesting stuff there. I'm I feel like uh, that one will probably surface online. Um, and then uh, I mean a lot of other uh, cool things. A lot of some of which we'll have putting up uh, on Kaiju transmissions. Um, Ed and Steve. Um, uh, their Godzilla's Revenge panel was really good. We'll have that up. Um, Eric Hominick, John DeSantis, Reiko Yamada, Tyler E. Martin, and Patrick Galvin. Whew! That was everybody. <laughs> um, 
their panel about Ifuku Bay will we will be putting up as well. Speaking of which, um, another shout out to those guys and Reiko Yamada and uh, I. Patrick, I don't know his last name, Patrick but Godon or Godin or something. Yeah, um, they put on the dueling piano concert, uh, which was uh, one of Ifuku Bay's classical pieces and two of his suites from the um, uh, Symphonic Fantasia. Um, and that those piece, by the way, awesome. Uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. It's either Rhythmica or Rhythmica Ostinata. It's amazing. I've listened to it like every day since we heard it. Same. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a fantastic piece. It's long. It's 25 minutes long. But uh, what's wild about that is if you listen to it, if you go out and you know search for Akira Ifukube Ritmika Astanada, and uh, you you listen to the piano part because you'll have a hard time finding like a dueling pianos part but you you can find the piece and it's got a piano in it um you listen to that and you listen to how long it is how many tempo changes it has how many melody changes it has uh how many uh, you know just just kind of different speeds and everything that, that that are in that song she played it without sheet music in front of her which was absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible to watch. Live. Yeah, um, yeah, she was one of Ifukube's top students, by the way, for those that don't know. But um, yeah, they did great. Um, the suites they played were a lot of fun. It was really, you know, it's fun, you know, picking out pieces like, OK, that I that's King Kong Escapes. That's Frankenstein Conquers the World, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was awesome. Um and yeah, I mean, uh as far as actual panels go, I, I think I don't think there's much else to say. Everything we saw was good. Um, I mean, I would give a shout out to all the friends and everybody that I caught up with over the weekend, but then we'd be here forever. Um, you know, but you guys know who you are and uh it was good seeing you guys. Um uh, but yes, uh, anyone have anything they want to talk about non-film related before we get into uh, quite the strange mix of, of movies here? Uh, I have an accomplishment in that I did not buy a single toy at G-Fest. I bought books and things, which like for me, you guys know me. I like toys. Uh, oh, Tom, our little Matt is growing up. I know, right? <laughs> my wife my wife was pleasantly surprised when i was like hey i didn't buy any toys and she's like what i can't i can't believe this um Meanwhile, yeah, but that i was... bought two <laughs> <laughs> i'm passing i'm passing on the my oh god no <laughs> <laughs> i bought i bought a gamera toy specifically to have it signed uh yeah. because because i didn't bring anything else for kaneko to sign um because all of his blu-ray releases are garbage and have crappy covers here in the states um so I bought I bought a toy for him to sign specifically because the only stuff he brought with himself to sign was pictures of him. Yeah, um, I got uh, I got the Godzilla making a fifty four book signed by Takarada, which is pretty cool. I'm I'm pretty stoked about that. The book is awesome, but he did like the whole I don't know the penmanship thing, and it was it was it's just a nice little keepsake for me. And that movie calligraphy. Awesome. I was about yeah, to say it's called calligraphy, dude. I I don't you know. Yeah, you're uncultured. We know. What a philistine. I am. <laughs> Anyway, uh, 
um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't buy too much. I mean, I bought toys for my kid. You know, she wanted a, a Gamera, she wanted a Gauss, she wanted a Mothra larva. Like, I got all that stuff for her. And then I just got a couple things. I got that big, huge Frankenstein and Gargantua's photo book that's literally just behind-the-scenes photos. Um, uh, and, um, you know, a couple T-shirts. Uh, I got a Mechanicong shirt. Um, and that's really it, you know. But I've never been huge on the dealer's room, and I'm the one that shakes my head when I see people standing in line for hours and hours and hours when they could be doing other things. Uh, but, um, it should be mentioned that you don't have to stand in line for hours to get there. You only when you try to get in there first thing. Yeah. Um, Cause if you had to stand in line hours to get in there, I would probably never have gone in all weekend, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, go in two hours after it opens and you'll be fine. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And they think that whatever they're looking for is going to sell out or whatever, but, you know. There might be, like, one thing if you're, like, a... uh, If you're, like, a super hardcore collector, you know, and those people then know that already. You know what I mean? Like, if you're just more of a casual, you're like, oh, I might want, like, a... an Angerous toy or a King Kong toy, see what they have type of thing. Like, it's not going to be gone, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, the what is called the G-Fest Film Festival is something that has grown quite a bit over just the last few years. Um, long story short, back in my day, you know, when I was uh, younger and... Uh, went to these conventions. They well, they still have it. They had, I, th- I think they still have it, like a fan film contest or something. But it kind of grew out of there, um, where people would be able to submit their films and they'd show in the screening room at the hotel. Um, and something weird happened this year, and I don't think. Uh, I paid more attention to it this year because it seemed like there were more kind of pro-slash-semi-pro films being screened this year than any other year that I remember. You know, I, I know sometimes they'll do some B-movies, like something like the, like a, an Asylum movie or, you know, something like that. And then inter interspread, they would have, you know, a short film here and there and um, a lot of, like I said, the fan films where it's like... Uh, uh, either people, you know, doing their own little stop motion films with Godzilla toys or um, uh, even just people like literally like playing with toys and, you know, mouthing words and stuff. Um, but this year it was like there was actually a good, decent selection of legitimate kind of indie films that I paid way more attention to it this year than in previous years. And if, if, if it's going to continue to grow like that, that's awesome because, um, you know, you need a, a couple, you need a reminder that, you know, there is still original content being made, even if it's just, you know, some cheap indie films. Um, regardless, if they can continue to attract more films like that, they, you know, um, I'm sure Jeff Horn is listening. Um, but if they continue to attract more stuff like that, maybe even split the f- 
the the film festival into one for like um you know full length feature films and one for you know the more fan film part um and i know jeff is listening because he's always listening uh he was also my convention dad all weekend usually yelling at me (laughs) um for something that i did that that was poorly calculated uh whether it be on social media or in person um i anyway um thanks jeff uh so we have uh i think four movies to cover out of the film festival and then one um that was kaneko's film that we all went and saw um uh matt and i saw two well three i guess if you want to count how beyond the fog and tom saw two additional uh so um do you guys just want to go in order of when we saw them or sure i guess that would make me first though huh uh yeah i suppose so i saw the very first one that i saw was on saturday okay uh, yes you saw not zilla yes so so uh before you get into that i was actually like reading a little bit about this film and um apparently and i sort of remember this but like uh Apparently, this was um, uh, a script that was pitched by Mitch Teamley, the director. He actually went to Toho with it, and they said they were uninterested in doing a, a Godzilla spoof. Um, and they were like, well, you know, we wish you the best of luck. And then I, he held a script reading at G-Fest in 2010, and then they put together a teaser trailer, which was put on YouTube in 2011, um, and then somewhere between then and now, he actually ended up getting the movie made. Um, I couldn't find the old trailer. Um, there's an internet was way different. It, did you see it? I've seen it before. It was like you could, if you just search for Notzilla, you can actually see a um, a screenshot, like a thumbnail, in one of the uh, one of the top video results that comes up. And it's like it looks like a Godzilla toy with like a red eye, like photoshopped onto it. Basically, um, it it was it was very different. Yeah, like, look- from and from what I read, I think it sounds like it just turned into a completely different movie. It, um, apparently, it was presented as a, like a fake movie that was for a lost film from the '60s, which was the last role for like a Raymond Burr type. Um, so yeah, it sounds like it really wasn't even the same. Yeah. And it was like subtitled the Duke of monsters and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely way different. I think. Um, Um, but yeah, no, you, you went and saw it. I, I mean, this is one that I wanted to catch, but it was just, I mean, one thing you'll learn about G fest is that there really isn't enough time to do everything you want to do. And sometimes certain sacrifices need to be made. Um, and unfortunately, this was one of them for me. But Tom, you did see it, so um, yeah. I mean, break it down. Let's hear. Uh, give us your your review. Now, first of all, it's not a bad thing that there's too much to do. Honestly, I'd rather have that than you know trying to find stuff to do. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's a it's a it's a spoof. It's a parody. Um, <clears throat> you know, and it, it, it's interesting because there's not a whole lot of full length feature Godzilla parodies um there's honestly, really not none 
none come to mind that are full length. There, there's kaiju movies that are parodies, like you know, Death Kappa or something like that. But I, I don't know that anyone that is specifically spoofing Godzilla. Right. There's quite a bit of short films and things like that. Like what's the Wadzilla from um, Chillerama? Things like that. Yeah, and you know, you get your you get your Simpsons references and Reptar and you know those kinds of things. But yeah, you don't get uh, <clears throat> you don't get a whole lot of these. So uh, Hero, uh, it's, and I think his full name is like Ichihiro, uh, and his last name is Honda. Um, he's a budding scientist who discovers the Notzilla species and manages to save an egg from destruction. I walked in like. 60 seconds after this thing started so i missed like just a smidge of that little bit of setup um because it's one of those that has like a cold open and then you get the credits a little later now as he's taking the the egg to america to study more and also reading a book called how to travel to america learn to speak english and save the world from a monster he goes to the bathroom and the egg gets sucked out of the bathroom toilet where it crashes into the ohio river and rests near cincinnati Meanwhile, a group of scientists led by Dr. Blowhart is conducting a bunch of science that has to do with sciencey stuff and blowing up nuclear reactors. And uh, Dr. Shirley Ugest is frustrated with his irresponsibility and misogyny. So uh, she uh, is trying to get him to be more responsible when, nope, he pushes a button and blows up a reactor. Uh, that causes the Notzilla egg to hatch, kind of, sort of. And um, Dr. Blowhart, again, being the responsible individual he is, starts giving the hatchling a few sips of his beer because he's like a good guy willing to share. Uh, unfortunately, one of the uh, Notzilla species, I don't know if you'd say weakness or whatever, one of their quirks to the species is beer makes their metabolism go insane. And they go from the normal size that they would be, which is, quote, about the size of a man in a rubber suit to uh giant sized just by drinking beer um so then he you know he finds someone who's got eighteen thousand cases of beer in his garage for a warm summer night um and he's gigantic the next time we see him and uh the military kind of just needs to destroy him they want to but uh hero and dr ugest are trying to save him. They think they can, you know, kind of reverse what's going on with his metabolism, bring him back down to size and everyone can live happily ever after. And we're watching a comedy. So you kind of have a feeling which way it's going to go. Um, <clears throat> the thing about it is it's pretty funny. Now comedy is a tricky thing. It's pretty subjective, right? Like nobody laughs at the, like you, you could tell a joke to a room full of people. Not everyone's going to laugh. Um, that's kind of how Notzilla is for, for me, I think. There's there's a ton of jokes in this. It's like wall-to-wall packed with humor. Some of them land. Uh, some of them don't. And <clears throat> I think, I personally think the movie would have been a little bit better if it would have been a little more comfortable letting a few jokes just not even exist rather than making everything a joke. You know, like... um. The, like the name Dr. Shirley Ugest. Uh, obvious, like it's pretty obvious what that is. There's never really like any jokes 
about that name. It's just thrown out there. You know, Dr. Hugh Mungish is another doctor. Again, no real jokes ever made about it. He's not either huge nor is he small. Like, there's no actual play on the words. So I think if they had been a little more willing to be like, all right, well, everything doesn't have to be a joke, then the things that were good jokes might have landed even even harder. But the flip side is some of the jokes are really, really funny. Um, the movie's set in like the 50s or 60s. Um, and there's a black man post- posing as Dr. Block, a Swede. And nobody <laughs> believes he's black because he's a scientist, uh, even though he's like just a black guy walking around. They're like, well, he can't be black. He's a scientist. Um, yeah, there's a moment when Hero wants to fight Dr. Blowhart, but realizes he couldn't beat him in a physical fight. So he uh, this is a weird parallel <laughs> to a movie we're going to see or talk about later. Uh, he challenges him to a haiku battle. And uh and physically defeats him by use of his imagery and poetry. Um, that stuff's funny. Um, so when it pushes from something that's just kind of like silly and dumb into something uh, uh, more absurd, I really, really liked it. And what pushed it over the top and what I would say like makes it a recommend, even though it's a kind of light recommend for me, is the special effects. Uh, not good, uh, in fact, kind of bad at times, but like those bad moments you can tell are done intentionally. You can see there's a lot of things they do that are really, really right. You know, a lot of com- composite shots and little CGI things like, you know, at one point, not Zilla when he's tiny runs through a wall and they do the little thing where they like CGI a hole in the wall that looks in his shape. Um, that's all done well, you know, like. It's not like, I don't know if you've ever seen like people try to CGI a screen onto a screen because when you try and film yeah, yeah. Uh, a screen, it's all shitty looking. If you've ever seen someone do it and do it bad, like it doesn't match up really well and it looks like that screen is really floating there. Uh, none of that stuff in this movie was, was like that. It was all really well done. So when they had like really bad moments, like a bunch of literal plastic army men fighting Notzilla, it looked funny because you knew they could do better they just didn't want to because it was a parody so um one really good bit with that was uh he attacks a train and they got all these little silhouettes of like little cardboard cutout silhouettes and he picks them up and pulls them out of the train and they're just those half silhouettes that like cut off at the chest and then he drops them and as he drops them they transform into real people that are falling down um, it's, it's funny. Um, it's a pretty mixed bag. It's a little long for its own good. And some of the humors is flat out, like not funny. Although I laughed at some stuff other people didn't. And like the whole room laughed at stuff that I was like, that's just like a poop joke. Um, so I laughed a lot. The effects that try are pretty darn good. I'd recommend it if you, if it ever pops up anywhere and you get a chance to see it, I give it a, th- a strong three out of five. Okay. Yeah, no, I I I'd like to check it out. Um, you know, if the opportunity presents itself. Um, it sounds like they are looking for um distributors, so um hopefully um that can can get out to the masses. Um was was this one that had a Q&A afterwards? 
No, no, it didn't. Okay, I did see someone was there in the suit. Yeah, I saw that. Um. All right. Um. All I, right. I well, wonder if they. It's. I wonder if they may have attended the the. It's possible that whoever was in the suit or the filmmakers, there was two screenings of this. Yeah. They may have attended the other one. I don't. I don't know. Um. Okay. Well. Or maybe, well, you said you walked in late. They might have just, they might have been there before the movie. To intro it, yeah. possibly. Um, all right, well, moving right along, here's one that all three of us saw. Of course, this is uh, Mr. Ishii's uh, film, Attack of the Giant Teacher. Um, uh, and it he brought it to G-Fest uh, to show us, he wanted G-Fest to be the first people that, that see it, so... Um, he brought it and uh, showed it twice. Um, Tom, since this is another one you already did your uh, review for, do you want to break down the, the plot synopsis for it? Yeah, because I can do this one a lot faster. <laughs> it, it doesn't have as many twists and turns to the plot. Um, so it just centers around a night school. They're preparing for their local talent and culture show, uh, which is like a thing that they do in Japan, uh, which I had never heard about. I, I didn't either, but yeah, and I guess the we summer saw two festival. movies. <laughs> we saw two different movies this this year that had that as like their backdrop of their plot. Um, <clears throat> they find out that the school is going to be closing, so it's a night school, so funding is running out, and uh, whoever's you know not graduating or whatever is going to have to attend a different school. They're hopeful the teachers might get into a different school, but it's coming to an end. Um, so they decide to do a musical in order to kind of send everyone off with a bang um, as sort of a, a nice farewell to each other. You know, some of them have become friends over the course of the class. And then also uh, the, the teacher decides to do it because he's like, well, maybe it'll help me get a job somewhere else if I show that I care. Um, well, it turns out, though, that two of the students are aliens and an evil alien is trying to eat them. And he loses them somewhere in the stars and they get to earth. Uh, he finds them later. Uh, they, they do something that uses their alien powers that basically triggers him to earth. Um, <clears throat> and so he comes to earth to get them and he's in like a giant alien ship thing. But it turns out that these two students are also in reality little miniature people and they've been taking a special pill to grow to human size to blend in with us so they give this pill to their teacher so that he can grow giant size and fight the monster um that's your main thrust of the plot the only other the other main like kind of big subplot is about this teacher or a couple of big subplots one is about this teacher uh, trying to pull one of her one of his students out of like the the clutches of like a, uh, uh, a a marketing company basically like she's constantly trying to sell stuff you know like a um, made for TV kind of cleaners and things uh, he tries to like pull her out of that another is about a student who is bartending and she uh, has a, a tab get walked out on by by someone and um, her employer threatens that she has to pay her back. And if she can't, 
then her employer's like, well, I can set up a porn shoot for you to be in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so her teacher has to kind of rescue her from that. Those are kind of the main other subplots in the movie. Um, and that's that's the whole movie. Yeah. Um, some interesting stuff about this. Uh, Ishii said that he made the movie in something like eight days or something. Eight and, days. Yeah, and the, yeah. the tokusatsu shoots, I think, were only like one or two full days. One and a half. Yeah. Um, and the the giant alien squid-looking spaceship uh, at the end is actually... Um, he basically went to Toho and, like, raided their... Essentially what's, I guess, their junkyard and just cobbled it together from pieces and parts of this and that. And uh, and that's how that was created. Um, yeah. I, I asked him if he knew any of the, the things he, he took apart. And he was like, no, most of them were already apart. Yeah. So it's like basically just walking through a junkyard kind of and being like, oh, I could use that. Oh, I could use that. So... Um. And, uh, and yeah, he basically did this whenever free time permitted, um, you know, during off hours of, you know, his day job. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I, um, I enjoyed this. I, I think, um, if I have any criticism, it would be, you know, it could probably be trimmed maybe 10 to 15 minutes, mostly with the summer festival stuff. Um, that stuff tends to go, uh, on quite a bit but um i i actually thought it was you know an earnest you know micro budget effort um if we're talking about this genre i mean it's better than some of the full length movies i've seen from like studios <laughs> um <laughs> you know the i mean i've seen death kappa this is better than death kappa you know <laughs> so oh, yeah. um uh, for me, anyway, a lot of the comedy landed. Like I said, I, I think it's a little long in the tooth, but like I really like all like the little all the little jokes about you know the girl being afraid that um, she'll have to do a porn shoot or um, you know all the all the jokes about you know how this teacher is just like um, not checked out. yeah Please. he's checked out and he's like he knows he's like half-assing everything i mean a lot of that stuff made me chuckle um uh i also found the 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 alien which is like a little puppet it reminded me of if you've seen ultra seven there's several episodes where like the main bad alien is just like this little like kind of puppet on a string remind me a lot of those um i thought he was funny um you know, he he has a very, uh, like, at the beginning when he accidentally shoots the the ship he's chasing, uh, I forget what he says, but, you know, it's a very kind of dry Japanese humor. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I found it to be an enjoyable little diversion. Um, it's not, you know, the, the best thing that you'll ever see, but if you get a chance, I, I think it's well worth checking out. Yeah, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. The You kind of hit the high points. I think the humor lands in a lot of spots. Sometimes it doesn't. Could definitely be trimmed. I love that he brought the little prop with him. He actually showed us uh, during the Q&A session. They were kind of making a dance, and that was kind of fun. So I would definitely recommend it for people that have an hour to kill and just want to check something new out. Yeah, I. Uh, it's not it's not anything special, you know, but um, it's weird because it's got a couple of 
special moments that you're like, man, and like, and you know, it's it's tough, right? Because he made it in eight days and probably with not much of a script and uh, and you know, with no money to be able to like say, oh, this really worked. Let's do more of this because this you just kind of whipped this together. But like when he takes the lawyer to the employer to um, try and collect the debt or get it ripped up or whatever for the, the, the bill um, that this one student got screwed on. He's like, I've never lost a battle. Don't worry. And like the, the, the employer, the, the bar owner takes that literally and calls in like her muscle who rips off her pants suit and underneath is dressed like a professional wrestler. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they have and, a wrestling match. <laughs> they have a wrestling match. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. I lost. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> That was, that was, that was my favorite part of the movie actually. And even, even before they started fighting, doesn't she walks, he's holding like a piece of paper and doesn't she walk up to it and like take a bite out of it? Yeah. He, he <laughs> bite like the bites of yeah, paper and they start fighting. Like that, yeah. Um, <laughs> It also, I just think like, you know, for, for something that, you know, like he said, he, he, he made in eight days, he actually crafts a couple of arcs here. You know, um, I think the writing was actually pretty solid. Like you have, you get these little subplots and these kind of solid relationships and real people that give you a bit of a buy-in for the plots, like more mundane aspects, because you actually care about some of the people a little bit. I mean, they're they're at least they feel like people to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I uh, I'd give it like a light recommendation. Also, I think for this movie, I think if it were shorter, it would be it would be something kind of really good that you would that you would recommend in the same breath that you might recommend like Gehara, the long and dark haired monster or is the dark and long haired monster either way um, or Negadon, the monster from Mars uh, if this were like in that running length, I think it would have been uh, quite a bit better, honestly. But I, I think it's kind of a light recommendation. I, I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. Uh, it shows a lot of ingenuity. And, uh, you know, if, if Ishii could could somehow manage to call something together with like more budget and, uh, you know, maybe more fully embrace his ability to go with those like really fun and absurd things like even when the teacher grows his clothes don't grow with him so he's just suddenly naked but he like rips apart uh, a billboard and just like slaps it over himself um i'd be excited to actually see him work further in this genre i know there's not going to be really much of a chance given what he said earlier in the, the convention but uh this was this was fun enough i'd give it um Three giant naked teacher dongs out of five. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm with you there. And wh- one thing that we we didn't really touch on is uh, the actual tokusatsu stuff in this is actually pretty good. Um, it's at least on par with some of the stuff you might see um, on any of the you know various. Um, TV shows, shows or, yeah. yeah. Um, and so for him to be able to construct and um, shoot all that so quickly, um, yeah, like like you said, Tom, it's one of those things that's like it really does make you wonder, like, hey, with an actual budget, like, what could he do with do then? 
you know, I, I was really impressed with the effects sequences for being um, something that cost probably, I mean, like pocket change, basically. Yeah. Some some of that is, you know, being who he is and getting to walk into the Toho vaults and just, you know, piece stuff together. And they're like, uh, OK, that's garbage anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, he, he couldn't have had more than a few bucks to make this thing. Yeah. And it, it looks way better than that. Yeah. And um, this is another one that if you weren't there, he did say, you know, he's hoping for uh, some kind of home media release somewhere down the line. So um, but he doesn't have any plans. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's, you know, something that he's going to see if he can find someone to to put it out. And hopefully he does. Um, and that way, all of you guys can support it, too. Um but yeah, I think this is a this is a three. Um, if I give this, I'd also give this a three out of five, um, and a very solid and respectful three out of five. I really admire what he was able to do. A lot of the comedy landed. Um, trim it up a bit, and you might have uh, something higher. But I did enjoy it. I'm and I'm I'm very glad that we had an opportunity to uh, to check it out. Matt, you're up. Yeah, man. Three, three out of five uh, giant teacher dongs. I mean, you, you, again, you guys kind of covered most of what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> I think my, my, my favorite is probably the, the end sequence with all the, the growing bit. And uh, the alien's kind of funny. He's making fun of things as he's trying to travel to Earth. It's actually a sequence where he's eating life on other planets before he comes to Earth, which is pretty cool. So I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, yeah. Really yeah, he like... He, and like, they look like he, uh, those things from uh, Space Ghost. or or what was that what was that show it wasn't space ghost with the with the those those two things yeah i know you're talking about and i can't it was the they had the triceratops that shot rocks on cartoon network herculoids Herculoids. yeah i forgot all about that part (laughs) um they they looked like whatever the hell that thing is like bloop or gloop or gleep or whatever (laughs) um so I we're gloop, we're not, gloop and gleep. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say bleep and bloop, but I didn't. But yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, man, the Hercu- Herculoids were cool. I don't care what anyone says. Someone make that. Herculoids are awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a property. Come on, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. That's an IP you haven't touched yet. Yeah. Start touching it. Um. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, actually I'm on a backtrack to giant teacher because I meant to do this and forgot, but I pulled up the list of crew on there and there's actually quite a few, um, veterans that I just want to give a shout out, um, just to lend it a little more street cred. Um, so production supervisor is Hiroshi Kashiba, Kashiwabara, Kashiwabara, um, from Godzilla 2000, Godzilla vs. Megaguirus. The DP was Yoshishito, Yoshishito Takahashi, who did Death Kappa and Ultraman Mabius. Uh, Gaffer at Sushi Ogaso- Ogasawara, who did Attack on Titan and Shin Godzilla. Special effects production designer Akio Fukushima of Shin Godzilla. Puppeteer effects uh, Akihiro Sujikawa of GMK. And VFX supervisor Osamu Izu- Izumiya of uh, Godzilla Final Wars. So, 
there's some prestige for you. Uh, I don't think we can give a review proper, um, but I do think we should take a couple minutes to give a shout out to um, Howl Beyond the Fog, which we covered last year a little bit just because uh, Daisuke Sato, the director, uh, and Keizo Murase were both at G-Fest last year. And Murase, if you don't know, um, is one of the few of the like uh, really revered Showa um Toho, well, not even Toho, because he worked on Gamera and Daimajin and Mighty Peking Man and Yongari and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but he's a suit maker, so, you know, he made Baragon and Varan and all kinds of kaiju that we know and love. And he's still doing it because he made Nebula from Howl Beyond the Fog, which is a short film, which it sounds like uh, Sato, he, he had come back this year. It sounds like they were really trying to get the whole thing finished in time for g-fest um, or close to but they you know just didn't have the time and sato was still working on it even on the plane over um but what he was able to show us was about 15 minutes um he said the final film should be uh about 40 minutes uh what he's what we we ended up seeing i think was more or less a highlight reel of a lot of the effect stuff that was done um but basically for those who don't know uh how beyond the fog is a uh a short using all puppets so not just the monster but also you know the humans it's all puppets um and uh it's set during the meiji era um and it's about a young boy and uh, a blind woman who uh, the blind woman has this kind of friendship or understanding uh, with this creature Nebula who uh, lives in, I guess, I don't know if he lives in the lake or whatever near them, but they have um, uh, a kind of bond. Uh, the monster is also blind. Um, and uh, what we were able to see was a few scenes, um, you know, we we got uh, a, a few cards in between scenes that tell us, like, okay, this is what's going on in this scene, this is what these characters are talking about in this scene, um, none of the dialogues, uh, none of the dialogue was, uh, or audio was done, at least for the dialogue, um, so we got, like, the gist of it, so we got to see um, a couple scenes of the characters, but... We also got to see um, an opening scene where the monster um, destroys a bridge. And then later when uh, the monster... Uh, I'm not exactly clear on what's happening. It seems like maybe the blind woman is maybe wronged by the townspeople in some way. The monster, uh, of course, being her friend, goes on a rampage through the town. Um, the monster is uh, a combination of a uh, hand puppet and... Uh, man in suit um and uh he he wrecks the town and that's basically what we saw so again pretty light on plot details at the moment uh but they did say sato is expecting it to be done around november um and he's hoping to get it online and of course for people that donated to the kickstarter dvds and blu-rays um and uh Again, hoping for uh, more widespread distribution at some point. But uh, what did you guys think of, of what we were able to see? Really incredible. Really, really, really incredible. I mean, like the the marionettes, the, the monster stuff, um, the, the effects. I mean, with that smaller scale, like it was really well done. The music, 
incredibly moving for something like I, I don't know. I was just in in awe the entire time. You know, it was 15 minutes long, and the entire time I felt incredibly captivated and just really anxious to see the fi- the finished product. Yeah, I was I was really impressed. Um, it, it is just like a highlight reel, and yeah, um, n- not only are we light on plot because uh, you know you just had these like interstitial cards, but the the timing of the subtitles on those interstitial cards was was not great. Um, it was not good. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a definite. Miss. If if you could read uh, about you know two hundred fifty words a second, you're good. <laughs> You know, so, but yeah, I mean, it's not like it was that hard to follow or anything. It was just, you know, you don't got any details. Um, But it was, it was super impressive. Uh, I think everyone was really stoked on it afterwards. It was one of the talks of, of the, the film festival, which like uh, for something that was only 15 minutes, um, you know, that's, that, that says something it, it, atmosphere was awesome i think that was my favorite part of it was just it has this uh oppressive atmosphere to the whole thing and uh also semi you know like beautiful and someone had asked him oh you know is that just a temp score because i loved it and you should keep it and he was like oh no that's the actual score so that was really encouraging yeah um i was i mean i i was pretty blown away by it i love the the monster nebula is such a cool um kind of sea sea monster kind of design um the the puppet and suit by marase shows that um you know as someone uh as old as he is i mean he hasn't lost a beat it's great to see him you know getting back in the game um, I love the idea of the characters all being portrayed by puppets and it being set in the Meiji period. Um, and uh, yeah, the music was great, uh, just super eerie looking and um, the the monster's roar itself just kind of like sent chills down my spine. Uh, I can't wait for for the full film and uh i mean you'll be damn sure we're we'll give it a proper review um when we get a chance to see it but uh i couldn't have been happier and um i mean anyone complaining that the genre is seeing a lack of originality i mean this stuff is here for you basically you know i mean I, I enjoyed King of the Monsters, but I was also bombarded and CGI'd to death with, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of screenwriting, modern Hollywood things that bothered me. And, you know, this is a breath of fresh air. You know, it's it's this stuff and, you know, the Colossals and that's that's the stuff that is always super interesting to me. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see the full thing. Uh, so immediately following that presentation, um, I, uh, you know, I headed out for dinner. I think Matt did too. And Tom, you stayed, uh, stayed to check out another movie. Uh, and that is made by some local folks around my area. And that was the Lake Michigan monster. Um, another one that is, uh, circling, um, the festival circuit in a few places. And, uh, 
uh, I'm assuming, looking for distribution like a lot of these. Uh, but yeah, so tell us about that. Yeah, so um, before the con, I saw all the lineup of films and I went to YouTube and watched all the trailers uh, or clips or what what have you. And I'd be like, eh, nope, that one's just some dude playing with toys. Oh, nope, that one's just some dude playing with toys. Oh, this one looks interesting. Oh, that one looks interesting. And this one, by far, actually piqued my interest the most. Because stylistically, what this movie looks like is um, as if Steve Hillebrand, which if anyone out there knows who that is or doesn't, if anyone out there rather doesn't know who that is, that's uh, the guy who does Spongebob or the creator of Spongebob. And, you know, he had a lot of input on the show. Um, it's if he did a live action, which again, if you've seen some of the live action parts of SpongeBob, you got to feel actually for what this movie kind of looks and sounds and feels like. Uh, but if he did a 1950s black and white monster movie, um, it's about a brave and eccentric sea captain named, I believe it's Captain Seafeld. And uh, we find out that he's actually not a sea captain, but um, he uh, has lost his father to what he claims is the Lake Michigan monster, uh, nearly a fathom off of the shores of Lake Michigan, which if you are uh, not familiar on the uh, length of a fathom, it is approximately six feet. So... They were nearly a fathom off the shore when his father was taken by the monster, according to him. <laughs> um, Is this the same monster Godzilla fought in Godzilla in Chicago? Oh, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> so he uh, he gets together a team of ruffians. Um, I don't recall their names. I'm sorry. And the IMDb page doesn't list the character names. Um, but he, he calls together this, this team of ruffians. He's got a... A sonar girl. Uh, she's on the sonar. He's got a, uh, a a man who is in the navy. Although navy is an acronym, he's like he was in the the nautical uh, aeronautics. Like, like it, it's basically like it's like something ridiculous. Like, and he's like, or as they might have called it, the navy. Um, and he's got a weapons guy, and they're gonna go out to hunt the monster. So. One of them, uh, the the Navy guy, has to go swim around in the water, and everyone else is watching the sonar, getting ready with weapons to to fight the monster. Uh, they are not sure that the monster exists. Uh, he is convinced that it does, and uh, the movie just kind of goes forward from there with you know this sort of like mystery for a little bit and. Then it reveals whether the monster really does exist, and then it goes into these characters and who this guy is and who his dad was, and uh, explores his family history. Um, and it's uh, about uh, loss and sea monsters and uh, spooky ghosts, and it is a weird, wild blast of a movie. Um, <clears throat> another one that maybe runs just a smidge long uh and it long might not even be the right word it's just it gets a little plotty at times um there's just there's times where you know maybe 10 minutes are just plot um and it's not 
that uh, comedy isn't working anymore. It's that there is none. You know, um, all so the comics. Is, so it's it. Would you say it's the opposite of what uh, you were saying about Notzilla? Maybe, maybe. Um, there's just there's just times where there is no comedy, um, and the, that's like my my biggest complaint. And it's because all the comedy in this movie lands super hard. Um, it's it's just top to bottom really funny you know uh characters like just it's just absurdist kind of humor um at one point you know he says that maybe the lake michigan monster is a woman and so she needs uh to to be attracted to something so he makes the navy guy strip but like he just says it as part of his plan and all of a sudden the navy's guys clothes are off and um and there's like a big black bar, whereas, but, but like, it's more just like that. He just says that your clothes should be off. And the guy's like, where did my clothes go? Um, stuff like that. It's, it's really, really funny. And all the humor lands. Um, it's, it's so wacky. There's, you know, like moments where he has to jump across a chasm, but it's like, so obviously like this rear projection, like I really can't describe it any better than like, go watch, um, a sp- an episode of SpongeBob where there's some live action and that's really what it looks like. That's the style of it. Um, I just, find it's so fascinating. Uh, I'm actually working on setting up an interview with the director, uh, just to find out, you know, who his inspirations were, where he got the idea for this from, um, where other people might be able to see it eventually. And this movie was made for seven grand and no part of it, looks like that i mean yeah some of it does obviously look like it's made on a budget but like everything about it that looks like it's on a budget looks intentional um it's it really plays into its style so strongly that you're never like pulled out of it by its budget and it just it goes to some really wild places you know the 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 main character has to summon a ghost army to fight the monster and uh you know his brother is also is also in the movie and he's like a crazy sea captain guy too uh, go watch the preview it's on youtube and you'll get a feel for what the movie's like i had a blast with this one um i'd give it a three and a half out of five uh maybe a four i'm i'm a, i'm almost to a four with this one um so it's a very, very strong three and a half, if not a, a, you know, lower end four. I just, I think it was so much fun. And actually, one of our friends was sitting in on it with me. This just kind of came at like a tough time of the day. Uh, it was the end of the day, you know. It was if you're at, time, yeah. If you're at G Fest, you know, um, you usually start your morning early, and. If you eat a lunch, it's pretty small and greasy and cheap. Um, and so by six o'clock, you're you're hungry. Uh, and that's when this had the misfortune kind of of airing. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, uh, Ryland Tews or Teos, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I'm going to hopefully get it from him when I when I interview him. He wasn't there. Um, but 
everyone who stuck it out for this had a blast. And one of our friends, you know, he he had to he had to leave because he was go also going to the uh, Oshima concert that was later that night. And he was like, I gotta get something to eat. I gotta bounce. But he was like upset that he had to leave. This is one that I think could have had a second airing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was well, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it'll return next year. Or, but um, yeah, that's another one I was uh bummed to miss but like i said dinner time you know met up with the family got some got some food but um uh so what i mean this is a monster movie podcast uh what about how's the monster stuff it's good um you know the monster's not a giant monster uh it's it's human sized um but not really it's much longer than a human um but uh yeah he has a he has a battle against it it's uh it's very high energy um how is it uh like special effects wise it i mean it's it's not like gonna blow you away uh but for seven grand it'll blow you away you know like for seven grand it looks just as good as any like 1950s uh b movie that there is better than some um you know it's 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 like above you know the stuff like attack of the giant shrews and crap like that where it's like literally animals yeah or whatever but it's animals and costumes you know like this is this is a massive step up from that it's very very stylish um and i think the black and white photography probably helps hide its budget a little bit because i think there's a lot of green screening and blue screening and stuff like that um because there's a lot of like digital backgrounds but it it totally works and totally plays to the style of the movie um i think the effects are really damn good considering again this movie was made for seven thousand dollars it's it's a lot of fun all right yeah and, and this is one with them being local filmmakers to me um, you know, I'm going to keep my eye out and see if maybe there's a screening around here at some point I can check out, but, um, yeah. but I yeah. would recommend it again. Again, this is one of those things that really plays into my sensibilities with like the absurdist kind of humor, like, um, towards the end of the movie, he's like, all right, that's it. I'm going to go fight this monster myself. And he like goes underwater and the rest of the movie is underwater and it's like 20 minutes. And he's not wearing a he's not wearing a diving suit. He's not wearing a helmet. He's just like walking around underwater looking for this monster. Um, and there's like no one ever mentions anything about it. like it's that kind of humor. Like it, it's just completely absurd. Um, it, it it's awesome actually. Four out of five. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> um. Okay. I like the. the the tagline is because you know there's five great lakes and this is the lake michigan monster uh the tagline is banned in four lakes (laughs) (laughs) um okay so uh this one's uh, i mean now we're getting we're we're i think we're kind of progressively getting weirder and weirder (laughs) um so sunday we checked out uh, the Great Buddha Arrival, which is um, something that I think has been getting a lot of attention throughout this fandom because it's stacked with uh, K 
cameos from you know people that we we love uh from other movies um so uh this is a strange strange film that i don't think uh anyone was really prepared for um well to get the cameos out of the way you have akira takarada uh peggy neal from X from Outer Space and Terror from Beneath the Sea. Yukajiro Hotaru from uh, the Gamera Trilogy. He's the, the policeman. Um, uh, Shelley Sweeney, Robert Scott Field, Toshi Toda, Norman England, Akira Kubo, um, Yoshi, uh, Yoshiro Uchida, who's the kid from the first Gamera film. Um, also, Yokiko Kobayashi. The uh, She is the... Actress from Destroy All Monsters, The Vampire Doll, and Yogg. Um, and uh, that's kind of mostly what the uh, PR and, uh, I guess, stateside kind of advertising has been around. Is like, hey, we have cameos from all these people. Um, and I was always saying, like, what... Okay, I, I see all these uh, new stories about cameos, but, like, what's the story here? Um, and what we got is something insanely bizarre and original and surreal and just uh, absolutely uh, bananas. Um, uh, I guess I'll try to do you break... Still, do you know what the story is? You've seen the movie now. I can do my best. <laughs> um, I guess some backstory is uh, kind of necessary here so uh in 1934 there was a film called the giant buddha statues travel through the country um which was about uh i mean pretty much what the title says um so this is actually the first japanese film with a giant uh uh character walking through miniature sets um Directed and produced by Yoshiro Edamasa, who uh, actually um, was one of Tsuburaya's mentors. Um, this movie is completely lost, um, destroyed uh, by the bombings uh, by the Allied forces during the war, um, along with um, you know some other things like those uh, those two little uh, Japanese King Kong movies. Um, so there's not much that survives aside from some stills, which we actually see in this movie. Um, and just looking at a little bit of it, uh, some things that uh, seem to be known are, um, well, this is the plot uh, for the, the 1934 film, um, or I guess what's known about it. Uh, the Buddha statue in shurakuin park i'm probably saying that wrong comes to life rises to his full 33 meter height and embarks on a journey to save humanity after passing through tourist attractions in the chukyu region the statue flies off to tokyo it flies i don't know um a 1934 magazine article describes scenes in which the statue strides over a train rests his head on a three-story building and makes geisha girls dance in his palm um so yeah, it's a super early movie. Who knows if it's anything more than just the Buddha walking around. Um, but that brings us to 2019. 
uh, where uh, we have the Great Buddha Arrival, which was made, I guess, um, in conjunction with uh, um, Itamasa's grandson, I think, his grandson. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so I'll, I guess I'll break this one down. This was nothing like I, like I was expecting probably like, you know, oh, the old one's a lost film. Well, I was expecting this to be someone being like, okay, well, let's try to recreate the lost film like as much as possible, you know, uh, and that's really not this. This is kind of, this is a sequel of like a meta sequel slash reboot. Um, and uh, I'll try to break like this. Get, this is basically a tokusatsu art house film so it's heavy in surrealism and leaving things up for interpretation and not really explaining itself um so the 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 movie is more or less about a um a reporter who's researching the uh the the lost film um of the original great buddha and you know researching the director Adamasa. And he's going around and interviewing people like Akira Takarada, who, um, you know, kind of the movie starts with Takarada in an interview, kind of breaking down the history of the original movie and its connections to Subaraya and Tokusatsu and Godzilla and stuff like that. Um, and uh, we follow this character who's trying to make this. Um, yeah, he's trying to make it. Is he trying to make a documentary or is he trying to write so- an article? The movie starts with that thing from Takarada, but that, when we see it, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily part of the movie proper. Yeah, it seems like, seems oh, like, they're, like, explaining to us the relevance of the original movie, but then it, like, actually right. is part of the well, story, Then, right? it, Then it, it goes into this character researching whether the Buddha actually walked. So he's trying to find out whether this statue actually had previously walked. Then later, someone says, no, you're confusing things. You think the statue walked, but it was just a movie. Then later, (laughs) someone says, yeah, it was just a movie, but it was based on a real experience that the director had. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) So we're following this character through these discoveries. um, And in the meantime... Uh, you have his friend who's kind of helping him with his project, um, and there's a little subplot where he creates a, a jet bike, <laughs> which I guess is the comedy <laughs> relief, and that's also where um, uh, Yuki- Yukijiro Hotaru from the Gamera films comes in, again, playing a, a detective, uh, because he notices the jet on this bike, and then um, the Buddha statue gets up and walks again, and he runs off with the bike. I actually thought the comedy in this movie was really funny. I think that's one of its. It was really funny, I, I, yeah, I actually think that's one of the strongest <laughs> uh, parts about it. But um, so yeah, at that point, the Buddha is walking again, um, and then it gets into the super surreal, dare I even say, Lynchian territory of. Um, you know, we're, we learn a little bit more about the director of the original film, um, 
And uh, the movie kind of takes us on this strange detour through what in Japan is the suicide forest. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it. It's a famous forest in Japan where uh, it has an extremely high suicide rate. It most recently made American headlines when um, Logan Paul, the YouTuber, found a dead body there and like was an idiot about it. Um, But we get this kind of montage it that's in this like it what looks like you know old super eight film it's black and white um of people committing suicide uh and the only sound we hear is this like these like buddhist chants um which is all very like eerie um and we missed an opportunity by not having Matt just do that the entire time we were reviewing this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we're, you know, and then we we see more cameos. We see uh, our buddy Norman England is a, a reporter who's freaking out. We see um, Yokiko Kabayashi stop, and she she doesn't really have any lines. She just kind of stares at it. Um, Akira Kubo, we see him um, uh, talking about the Buddha. We get some some pretty amusing uh talk show clips of um you know conspiracy theorists talking about why the buddha is moving one is saying it's like a, a reaction to dark matter and another guy <laughs> and and then and then that and then the host is like wait that doesn't make any sense are you supposed to be a scientist like what are you talking about and then and then he's like no it's aliens again that's more stuff that i thought was really funny um and then uh um uh I guess more of a, a little Easter egg for kaiju fans is the 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 guy that played the kid in the the original Gamera movie tells a story about how he was uh, dangling from there was an earthquake I think and he was dangling from a, from a lighthouse and the Buddha held his hand out and saved him which of course you know is uh, what happened to him in in the original Gamera film um, so you have stuff like that and then you get a crazy. Uh, I mean, I guess we shouldn't spoil this since, you know, I mean, no it's one else has really it. seen it yet. But, yeah, but this you, movie might this movie, I think, of all the ones we saw is the highest probability of being seen by people like. Yeah. Yeah. In the relatively near future. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we won't go into spoilers, but there's a twist at the end. And that for, and first of all, the twist at the end leaves you wondering, like okay, what are you, what is the movie trying to say? And this is where it, it, it it's art housey in, in that I think it was probably left open to kind of discuss. Um, and I, you know, I'm not a big uh, expert on Buddhism or anything like that. So maybe there is some, some symbolism or undercurrents that I'm not picking up on. So maybe it's willful ig- ignorance on my part. I fully admit to that. Um, and then at the end, you're like, okay, well, you know, what did it mean? And then the movie itself, um, probably a little bit before it ends, kind of gets into people talking about, like, is the Buddha here to warn us? Is the, is the Buddha walking to warn us about something? Is it here to make us feel better? Is it here to say that it's protecting us? Is it here to threaten us? Basically, nobody in the movie knows, and I don't think anyone in the audience is really supposed to know either again this is more of like hey open to interpretation kind of stuff um and then we get a post-credit scene which is like straight out of the david lynch playbook um also i am gonna point out that both matt and myself have a thank you credit 
uh, at the end. So shout out to Avery Guerrera, who uh, worked on the uh, put together the credits for the film for thanking us. And by proxy, we uh, have our own IMDb pages now. Um, uh, anyway, I don't know. That's that's the best I could do. I, I mean, the movie is way good. stranger than <laughs> I'm probably even making it sound. But how did I do? Did well. I, I really dug this movie, actually. Like, I walked in not knowing what to expect, and I walked out knowing less, I think. But uh, it was it's hard to talk about without giving away any spoilers, but it, it makes you think. And I think that's one of the things. Like, if you're going to have a movie like this and you can raise questions and make people think through it, and it actually stuck with us. We were talking about it throughout the night. And so that works well to its credit. And the the mood is eerie. The comedy works. The bike stuff was hilarious. I love the, you know, the, the cop flashing his badge. Everybody immediately laughed when he does that during the movie. And it's, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't even, I still don't even know what to make of this movie other than, <laughs> other than the, the phrase I coined on my way out, which is perfect. And, uh, and, and Avery, if you're listening, I know he was involved in this. Um, I say this with a lot of affection. <clears throat> it's like if the asylum made a David Lynch movie. That's all I really know how to respond to. Still, <laughs> to the it, it's days after I've seen it, and I feel like that's all I can come up with. Um, and it would be, it would be even more like that, and it would be even better if you would take out some of the cameos um because there'll be a time where the movie is just kind of clipping along clipping along and then like it gets to the end of a scene and it just goes to black for like a little too long and then it comes back and it's just one of those cameos and it's just the person talking like straight into the camera and then their cameo ends and it goes to black and then it picks back up with the movie and so you cut those little 30 second diversions out here and there you'd have something that I don't even want to say it'd be more cohesive because there's like no cohesion to this movie um but it would feel a little less stilted uh and it would it would feel a little more um purposeful as a whole um but yeah the, the it's it's funny when it when it wants to be um it's got a really eerie atmosphere to it during that extended like suicide sequence i was just constantly wondering what the hell was going on um but also freaked out i was also freaked out by it um it is it's one of the most bizarre movies i've seen like in general it's so weird yeah um wildly entertaining though it is a wildly entertaining movie. I mean, granted, I think I actually texted Matt and Bird in the middle of this movie. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was a common thought for all of us during this movie. But uh, but it's very, very entertaining. Yeah, I, I'm very happy that this movie exists uh it's not i mean if this does end up getting wide distribution um it's it, this isn't gonna be you're gonna love it or hate it i mean oh yeah it's right up my alley um the the asylum doing david lynch is a great way to put it because it has all the low budget pitfalls of an asylum movie or of you know a less experienced director where you know certain scenes 
dangle for a few seconds too long and you know some of the um the actual uh um directing or cinematography might seem a little amateurish but it's also very heavy on this like artsiness that gives it such a unique flavor um and this is where i'm gonna say what i said when i talked about how beyond the fog i mean if you're gonna complain that there aren't original tokusatsu movies being made i mean it might not be a big franchise thing but that's that's kind of the big takeaway from I guess uh, these these films is that I mean we're talking about what um, five movies including that includes Howl at, at G Fest that are you know people are doing them they're just not big franchise films it's not Godzilla yeah. it's not Gamera it's made with like pennies of the budget but someone's got to do it. And the more original the content, the better. Um, for the most part, I thought the effects in this worked. There's some shots of the Buddha walking where it's like, okay, someone's just like moving a mouse up and down through a, a cityscape. But then there's <laughs> other sequences that I thought are, were really, really well done. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I the cameos were definitely at this point uh seemed like okay how are we gonna get your garden variety kaiju fan to be interested in this to donate to the kickstarter to how 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 are basically how are we gonna trick these people into watching something so bizarre um <laughs> and and so i think that's kind of the purpose of of it being so loaded up with cameos um oh yeah which I, I was fine with all the with the cameos. I I think yeah, like you said, some of them are a little too long. Um, Peggy Neal, with all due respect, uh, is probably the most distracting of them, just because you you can t- see her like reading a cue card. <laughs> um, yeah, the least distracting is the Gamera three guy. Yeah, and and what he said, and and that's also kind of like. That scene was definitely fan service, and that like, oh, it's it's the oh, did you say the Gamera three guy? Well, the the Gamera, the kid, the Gamera trilogy guy. Oh, okay, the cop. Yeah, he was the least distracting because I, he's just the same character and everything. The overreactive, usually well, a cop who's mugging for the camera and being silly. He even had a little bit of fan service in his thing where he's a cop. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, but yeah, Gamera. the kid, the kid, the the guy that played the kid in the first Gamera, like, I mean, you don't need you don't need that scene, but that's also like it's obvious fan service, but it's not the kind of fan service that bothers me. Um, but uh, yeah, I I was not ready to experience something so absolutely batshit borderline experimental yeah for real like this is this is practically an experimental film um and uh geez i mean i i this is another one i would watch again um uh it's i mean i don't know what else there is to say about that i mean if i would encourage people to check it out um and i'm gonna give this give this movie um 
I'm torn between a 3 and a 3.5. I think I'm going to go with the 3.5 just because of how incredibly just I was I was I was thrown for such a loop that I wasn't expecting. So that's I think that's going to bump it up an extra half. Um uh so yeah, I give it three and a half um people committing suicide in the in the suicide <laughs> forest set to Buddhist chanting. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I think the fact that it sticks is stuck with us and we were talking about it and we had questions about it and it, it three and a half definitely feels perfect. And I and I like Tom, you called it a banana sandwich on, on Facebook and that, that made me laugh. Um <laughs> That, I mean, the movie is completely bonkers, and I appreciated what it was doing. And so, like, the very fact that I walked away, not only satisfied, but, like, wanting to talk about it, I think it accomplished exactly what it set out to do. I'm so torn on what scale to use. Because this this movie movie feels kind of incompetent in some ways. Um, and I say that again with with actually some affection, um, because I think some of that incompetence is actually what makes it so charming and 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 enrapturing. I'm so torn on whether I want to go like like negative on this, but be like like it's like a negative five damn near. <laughs> like it's so insane that it's like absolutely enrapturing. And what and would you what would you give like, it on Letterboxd? I'd give it a three and a half. I'd give this a three and a half. Um, I'd give it a three and a half accidental butt cracks. Um, I got to talk about that for a second. So <laughs> there's a moment in the movie's climax. Now, this is a movie that has a lot of humor in it. Um, not a ton, but a lot. You know, more than more than like uh, Howl from Beyond the Fog, you know, like... Um, so th- this is a movie that has humor in it. Now, there's a moment in the climax where uh, a character is uh, uh, climbing over some some stuff, some rubble, and I think it's supposed to be a fairly serious moment. I did not on my initial watch, and his butt crack slips into the frame. <laughs> I did not notice this. I was the only one, and I, I, laughed. I laughed loud because I thought it was a joke. I do remember you laughing. I was like, what is he laughing at? Um, Chris, Chris noticed it too. So uh, I was not alone. Um, that was, that was an accident. That was a whoops. <laughs> and it's left in the movie. Um, but yeah, I'd give, I'd give this three and a half accidental butt cracks out of five. All right. Um, I'm right there with you. Um, okay. So moving on. Uh, we were fortunate enough to attend a screening of Kaneko's movie Linking Love um, at the Pickwick Theater. He was there to introduce it and thank us for uh, for coming out. Um, it is not a kaiju movie. It is a sci-fi rom-com pseudo-musical slash uh, star vehicle for the J-pop group AKB48. Um, and Tom, you probably have the best synopsis, 
Oh God! <laughs> so you can yeah. even just read the one that uh, you, that you already wrote. Um, but I'm going to hand this one off to you because uh, you broke it down in the best way that you could. Only it's something that like I the, your head would will explode uh, if you <laughs> say it all is like one paragraph. So for listeners at home, uh, just just prepare yourselves. All right, hang on. Let me let me track this down real quick. Where was it? Yeah, this movie's this movie's crazy. Um, what the hell happened to it? I had it all written down. Oh well. Anyways, <clears throat> Leaking Love is about a girl who grew up as a child wanting to be a J-pop idol. She does not achieve these dreams of becoming a J-pop idol, so now she's chasing her adolescent dream of becoming a rap battle goddess she's one night practicing some sick burns against her dad because her dad has ruined his marriage and is and the mother has moved out of the house and this is gonna you know put stress on this girl's life and the dad has ruined his marriage because he's obsessed with big boobed anime girls and he's crying himself uh silly and asking his big boobed anime screensaver what he should do now that his wife has left him. So the daughter's practicing some sick burns in a rap battle against him. And she accidentally says a phrase that sounds a little bit like abracadabra. And so a genie pops out of a lamp in her room. The genie disgruntled that he was awoken from his 5,000 years of sleep by a mispronunciation or a, a mishearing sends the daughter back in time to teach her parents how to correctly love each other. In order to do this, she has to train her mother to be a J-pop idol so that she can get her dad to realize the joys of real women and not be obsessed with anime icons. And if she fails or alters the timeline too much, the time cop is going to be very upset and also he might lose his job. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, yes, and um, once again, we're dealing with the summer festival at school. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the mom has to, uh, I guess, assemble a J-pop group, which was is AKB48, a real life J-pop group. Uh, and all the while, there's also, because she's in uh, 1992 or something, I think. Um, uh, if you've seen Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, <laughs> um, this movie it also has a lot of uh, comment on the Japanese economic bubble, which was uh, about to burst. Um, so there's a lot of that. There's uh, the one recruiter guy who always talks about um you know how he loves living in the bubble economy and and whatnot um but yeah so i mean where do you start with (laughs) with this movie really i think you start with the genie just because everything everything else up to that movie up to that point is it's got its its charm and it's mildly amusing but when that genie popped up i think that was the first time the movie got a big laugh in the theater yeah, um, that's when I realized I was like, okay, I'm not gonna be able to predict what the hell is gonna happen next. And I think that's when I started to like it too. 
And then the time cop, of course, he's like, you know, <laughs> he's he's like the Legends of Tomorrow thing where his job is to like make sure any time travelers don't mess the timeline up too bad. But he's like constantly afraid that he's going to get in trouble and that he's going to get fired. Uh, yet every never... time he comes in, there's this very serious kind of like uh, James Horner-esque <laughs> music that comes in. And then you get this befuddled time cop instead of, you know, this badass character. He never says like why it's a bad idea for someone to mess with the timeline either he just says he might lose his job (laughs) well he does throw out the butterfly effect at one point i forget exactly what his example was but swatting a mosquito yeah but i forget what he said like would happen if you swat him oh it's like someone that if you swat a mosquito and it was essentially like if you swat a mosquito and it doesn't bite someone who would be the next hitler uh (laughs) and give them malaria and kill them yeah (laughs) and you could ruin the timeline yeah he never says like he never really says like oh if you ruin the timeline you could like ruin the fabric of existence or anything (laughs) he's just like if you ruin the timeline i could lose my job um this movie's hilarious uh i i mean i knew it had the kind of uh you know i guess it's kind of a riff on back to the future with you know how do I get my parent how, go back in time and how do I get my parents to fall in love with each other? But I wasn't prepared for just how funny and charming and yes, adorable uh, I, f- I would find this movie. I mean, there's uh, there's some great meta stuff at one point. They're like, do you see the new movie by this bum Shuji Kaneko or and then they're like, you mean Chusuke Kaneko? And, you know, they cut to like clips of him. Um, at one point when they're kind of making fun of the time period, they cut to an act from what I understand, an actual car commercial that he directed that has dated horribly. Um, that was hilarious. That was a great commercial. <laughs> uh, and, um, there's some other stuff that I thought was just really smart. Uh, I liked that in this movie, the otaku nerdy dad, um, is the one that's not really interested in the cute, I guess, normal girl you know and um you know you have this cute kind of normal girl who's pining for this guy who's just a super nerd which usually at least in u.s rom-coms it's the other way around where the nerd is trying to get you know the hot chick um i thought it was interesting that that was kind of reversed i uh and um I mean, I I would totally watch this movie again. I I I laughed more than I'm used to when I watch any movie. You know, um, you know, comedies infamously are not really my thing. You know, not not quite a genre that always clicks with me. Just because I usually find comedy so broad, but this was so bizarre and so surreal and so just bonkers that I was just swept up in it. And uh, I I just had such a good time watching this movie. Thanks to this movie, I think all of us have been li- listening to uh, J-Pop, AKB48, for like the past week. And all like walking out of the theater, just pure joy. Like it was just such a fun time. I There's that, uh, the subplot being the, you know, the mother... The daughter trying to get her parents back together, and if she doesn't, she's going to fade away. She basically starts during different points in the movie. Yeah, it's the Back to the Future thing. 
thing. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot. I mean, it's just it's a lot of fun. And like, I don't know how you watch that movie and just don't walk out completely elated. It, it's it's a great time. Yeah, it's it's really funny. Um, you know, and and it and it's heartwarming. Like they have those, you know, those the the people the the two foil characters. I don't remember their names, but the one girl who's like a little bit older. She's been around for a while, uh, and the one who's kind of newer on the scene. And they like hate each other throughout the movie, and then they become like really good friends by the end. Um, you know, I I really liked the uh, just the whole like how kind of obsessed with them all the guys got you know and like how they like they were like um <clears throat> like any other you know teen pop idol band like especially in the 90s like you know everyone had their favorite everyone knew who they were oh you you know me you you're my favorite no you're my favorite you know like um that that kind of stuff was just like very time period accurate. So were all the like clothes and like, you know, the one guy busts out his like big ass cell phone and um, <laughs> like all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's some low hanging fruit joke, but it's, it's all, it's all there and it's all funny. It all works. Um, there's a great moment of like, none of us are a hundred percent sure again, if it's supposed to be a joke or if it's supposed to be the serious moment that kind of like turns the tide of the film. Like, I'm not sure if this was this part was supposed to be just a joke or if it was supposed to be like the moment in Back to the Future where like um, where Biff is starting to beat up George and you're like, get him, get him, because it's like or like he's almost raping the, the mother type of thing. So there's a moment towards the end of the movie where um, this the one character, the, the, the mother is not sure whether or not she's going to go out with this with this J-pop band and, and go onto the stage because uh there's a whole thing. She's just not sure about it anymore. And as she, right as she's starting to make up her mind to go back, the more antagonistic character of the movie like corners her and he's like, no, no, you can't go. And then he pulls out a taser. <laughs> <laughs> and he just tases her and like throws her in his car. And we all were like, <laughs> people aud- like people audibly said, what the fuck? <laughs> Uh, Nothing in the movie up to that point is anywhere near that violent. <laughs> like, right. Um. There's also uh, there's a really interesting thing going on. Uh, there's a couple really interesting things. One one being, I'm not 100 percent sure whether the movie does a little bit to kind of undercut its own message. Maybe. Um. The the notion of getting someone into quote real girls by getting them to fixate on an idol. Um, is a little bit weird. Um, and then also there's a character who I really like, um, and I really like, really, really like certain aspects about him, but I do recognize that his overall characterization is a little bit problematic. Um, and that's the, uh, transgender choreography dancer. Um, he's a little much of a caricature and a little stereotypical in his presentation, especially once he kind of comes out as what he is. Um, that's a little bit problematic, but also really interesting for a movie made in Japan is that every character accepts him for who he is. It's never, yeah, it's never made like a big deal. 
It, I, I think it yeah. does a better job of that than some American stuff that I've seen. It's it's weird too because like occasionally it's a punchline, but it's weird that it's never a punchline about him being transgender. It's more just the punchline is before that he's such a jerk, and then afterwards he's so sweet and bubbly. You know, like that's the joke. It's not he's transgender, ha ha ha. Um, and he's he's accepted by everyone. They never pick on him for it. They never. You know, no one's no one finds out about it and then refuses to leave the band. In they fact, they really never even talk about it. Them finding out about it is what brings a lot of people back into the band, though. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's that's a very interesting thing to happen in in any movie in in the world, <laughs> let alone a Japanese film. Yeah, let alone a Japanese one where they're talking about sterilizing people who want that. Like, um, it's a it's a really unique i really loved that and i also really liked the character i really you know he's he's such a jerk to them um and then later you know they're practicing and uh someone's not as into it i forget why but he's like hey you let's get into it don't make me get angry and it's just like really like a, a completely flip of what he was doing before it's really funny um it works and and so it might be like a slightly problematic you know like stereotype kind of thing but um it's a really bold choice and i liked it a lot yeah um then of course uh like we said this is also a vehicle for akb 48 i mean it stars members of the group and uh is about um uh the the daughter going back in time and trying to get her mom to join a j-pop group so of course we have lots and lots of songs um if i have any real complaint is that uh yes i understand the purpose of this is to you know sell akb records um but even then especially in the last act I, it was getting a little bit too heavy on the songs you know it could maybe you know, if you chop out maybe two songs, you know, I think uh, for me it would work a little bit better. That being said, uh, I do think this movie definitely brainwashed all of us because now we're all listening to AKB48, <laughs> which if you, if you know our music tastes, really makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I've made a J-pop Spotify list thanks to this movie or, you know. Yeah, if they cut one full song and then a couple of the others just down a little, yeah, I think that would have worked a lot. I, that that was my main complaint as well, and I mean it has a purpose for being there, but I I totally agree with Bird in that it was getting a little long in the tooth. That said, I'm still singing the song, so clearly <laughs> it worked for what it was. And uh, it's the, insane. The like... second song, really, it's really the second song in their like performance at the end. That one doesn't really need to be there at all. Is that the schoolgirl one? No, that's the, the very one, first, the first one. one. Yeah. Which is um, insane, by the way. The lyrics are all yeah. like... Thank you oh, Mark, yeah. for the awesome subtitles, because I'm sure... I would love to know more about how he wrote those, because like, the words were rhyming and stuff, and obviously that's not a natural thing to happen when you were just to translate uh, to English. Well, no, I will say, I, as far as the subtitles go, I think Norman really knocked it out of the park with the yeah, battle rap were, stuff. They were great. Because... I I don't know. I can't imagine how how you would 
even begin to subtitle Japanese rap lyrics for an American audience. Yeah. Um, there was like one moment, and I'm sure if you know if I were to rewatch the movie and be able to freeze frame it, there was like one moment where I was like, "Oh, that's a weird moment in the subtitles." It, it was like a a weird grammar thing where I was like, "Oh, that's a weird." Like I didn't understand the line of dialogue being spoken at that moment. Um, but yeah, the rest of the time, like the subtitles and all the lyrics and everything were fantastic. Um, and yeah, like you guys said, that was Norman. Um, the subtitles on that schoolgirl song are bonkers. They are insane. <laughs> um, wildly inappropriate and hilarious. Um, I forget what they exactly are, but they're like uh, roughly. Um, I maybe I'm not just a schoolgirl. I want to know a woman's love. This uniform is in my way. Come and give me a hug. Like <laughs> one of them's like, I know I'm only sixteen, but I don't care or something. <laughs> um, and it's a super catchy song. <laughs> <laughs> no, the that movie was absolutely insane. And uh, I mean, again, I mean, Tom, you you, I mean, there was so much awesome stuff going on at G Fest this year. Whether it was you know, those indie films, I mean, who knows if or when you're going to be able to see those again, or Linking Love, or the concert. I mean, this really was a good year to be there. Um, and just, you know, a lot of stuff that just seemed really special. And this uh, is notwithstanding. And, um, you know, I mean, with this not being Kaiju and it being Sunday night... You know, we were all kind of concerned, mostly for Kaneko. It was like, well, I wonder what the turnout is going to be like. You know, is he going to be disappointed if a lot of people don't come in? And, you know, sure enough, at the Pickwick, it was in this smaller theater that I don't even, I didn't even know they had, which is in like a separate building. And even then, you know, it probably filled up maybe half of it. Um, but from what I understand, I mean, Kaneko was very pleased and very humbled with the turnout and... You know the amount of peop- the amount of laughs and and claps that the movie got, and um, it was just super cool uh, that you know we were able to to see that movie and especially see it the way we did. I would I would love it if like and now I don't I don't go to G Fest every year, but wouldn't it be great if like every year G Fest could have a Sunday night showing like that where um uh, whoever their their guest of honor whether it's a whether it's another director or even an actor brings in a movie of theirs that um we haven't all seen 55,000 times you know that that uh is is outside of the genre that can spotlight you know sort of a different aspect of their career yeah that would be really cool if, if that could become like a, a an annual tradition like because because i would that was that. sort of the perfect like little button to, to end g-fest with yeah yeah especially because no. we're never gonna get to see that movie again like <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, no, it was uh it was great. So, um how many uh how many worried time cops do you give Linking Love out of 5? I think it's a pretty solid 4. 
maybe even four and a half. Like the amount of fun that I had at that movie, like it was awesome. I'm comfortable at a four. I am too, actually. Um, and you know that's, and again, one of the cool things about this opportunity is like, I I don't even if this movie was readily available to me. And I just saw the trailer and I didn't know much about it. Like, this isn't something that I would be like, oh, I got to see that. You know, this was like the opportunity to see this movie fell in my lap. And I'm so glad that it did. And, you know, that's how, you know, we are able to experience new things, expand our horizons. And uh, I just feel super fortunate that we had the opportunity, you know. So shout out to Kaneko and... Uh, the guys at G-Fest, and also, of course, Norman for for making this screening happen. And Norman, if you're listening, um, get on Kaneko and get us a Genie Time Cop buddy movie. <laughs> I would watch that in a heartbeat. I, oh, I would, I would, <laughs> I would pick up the distribution rights in the U.S. <laughs> um, no, it was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I guess that's our uh, that's our G Fest movie roundup. Um, uh, I I mean, if this year was a indicator, I'm really excited and curious to see um, what kind of movies G Fest will play. Not only at their film festival, but will we get another thing similar to the Linking Love screening? I mean, and for the film festival, I mean, this one has the most, I guess. I say this, you know, not as a disrespect or a put down to the people that do the more fan film stuff, but this one definitely had the most, I guess, kind of like, quote unquote, real movies there. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was just this was it was a weekend full of cool opportunities and cool movies that you wouldn't see uh, anywhere else. And um, yeah, we, we've, we've talked about it a little bit. If, if you're if you're if you're a young person cutting your teeth on doing some Godzilla stop motion type of stuff because, you know, and that's what you're cutting your teeth on. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, I don't love the, you know, like 30 year old men who are playing with toys as a movie. Um, but like, yeah, the, the movies that played this year, I mean, definitely felt more, yeah, like you said, real than those. And I mean, that even extends to um, we saw most of, but I didn't get to see all of this FM 132.9. I didn't necessarily love it, but like I, I find that more interesting than someone playing with um, action figures. It was like sort of a kaiju version of Pawnee Pool, if anyone's familiar with the movie Pawnee Pool, um, which is about a uh, uh, the, this movie, the FM 132.9, is about a monster appearing and everyone's relaying it from inside a, a, a radio station. Um, at least it's kind of an interesting attempt. Um, and then you, they also played uh, Raiga, Monster from the Deep. Uh, they played Raigo one night. And um, their one midnight movie that they played was uh, The Giant Spider by Christopher Mim or Meme, Mime. Um, that's available on Amazon prime and I would recommend it actually. Uh, I didn't see it at G fest, but I, I have seen it before. Uh, it gets a little one note. You know, the joke is basically it's a 1950s monster movie, but I'd give it a, a recommendation. Actually, it's, it's a pretty fun send up of like, um, tarantula or like, you know, those kinds of movies. 
Um, so yeah, they definitely set a lot aside of time for like, like you said, real movies. Uh, and that's, that's cool. Cause I'm glad I went to all the ones I did. Yeah. Um, and, uh, just some of those movies that we talked about, I mean, uh, unfortunately, you know, stuff like Attack of the Giant Teacher, Howl Beyond the Fog, um, Great uh, Buddha Arrival. I mean, the the th- this is the future of the Japanese tokusatsu. I mean, Shin Godzilla and its success, I think, pretty much buried the chances of any Japanese studio wanting to do traditional tokusatsu anymore and um you know it sucks you're not gonna see it in you know your franchises but you are gonna see um see it in things like attack of the giant teacher or even um i'm not a huge fan of these films but shinpei hayashiya's movies i mean it it will live on in a different capacity um but it's gonna be in the in more indie and underground level um so that's why, you know, if if you get a chance to see that kind of stuff, you know, support it because outside of Ultraman and Super Sentai, I mean, it's it's as good as dead, basically. And I mean, Ishii said as much. Yeah, and so did Kaokita. Yeah. Um so That's a downer to end this on. <laughs> uh well, yeah, but it does uh, you know, it it does open the door up for some inventive indie filmmakers to to do their thing, and you know that's what we saw in the sampling of uh, of movies that we talked about. So uh, I guess we're good, and uh, good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.